Well, good morning. I want to invite you to bow with me and let's have a word of prayer and ask the Lord to uh, instruct us and strengthen us from his word today. Father, we come together as brothers and sisters in Christ, beggars in need of bread before our Father who abounds in good gifts and all the riches of glory. And we ask you that you would strengthen us today. Feed us from your word. Help us change us into the kind of people who look more and more like Jesus every day and especially the kind of people who are strengthened and steeled by your word and by your spirit. And Lord, teach us the glorious truths that shine forth from your word in the book of Philippians. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Philippians chapter 1. Today, we're going to look at verses 27 through 30. We'll read them here in just a moment. In his book, Trial by Fire, William Bennett recounts how in 2002, the Vatican commissioned the excavation of a tomb. The excavation of the tomb that is in the Basilica of St. Paul there near Rome. For over 2,000 years, church history and lore and tradition has said that that tomb that's in that basilica contained the earthly remains of the man that we know as the Apostle Paul, the man who is the author of the book that we now study together. So in 2002, that project was undertaken. In 2009, the Pope released the excavation findings from that dig. And here's what they found. They found a white sarcophagus that contained bone fragments that they subsequently carbon dated and found indeed to belong to a person there who died in the first or second century. They found grains of incense. They found a blue fabric that had a linen filament in it. And they found a piece of what was called a precious purple cloth with gold sequins and I couldn't help but think about a woman named Lydia who was the first member of the church of Philippi who was a dealer of purple cloth and in that tomb they found a slab of cracked marble that contained three Latin words that when translated say Paul, apostle, martyr. And in his book, Bennett, describing this dig and their findings, ponders this question. Here's what he writes. What motivated Paul to embrace suffering and death? What motivated this man to embrace willingly, to give his life fully and freely to die? for this cause that we call Christianity. And that is a profound question that I want us to wrestle with today and try to find some answers as we examine the final words of Philippians chapter one, that Paul, apostle, martyr, wrote to the church at Philippi. What motivates, enables, and encourages Christians like those Ordinary folks in Philippi, 
Ordinary folks like you and I to give our lives, to stand firm in the face of opposition and suffering and persecution because of Jesus. So I think we find some profound things, Philippians 1, verses 27 through 30, and it says, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear about you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel and in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you and this too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him, but also to suffer on his behalf, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. Today's message is entitled, An Astounding Accounting of Christian Suffering. An Astounding Accounting of Christian Suffering. Because, it's astounding because this passage and many like it in the New Testament, call us to not just embrace suffering when it comes, but to charge forward in the cause of Christ, knowing that that is what very well may await us. And this passage says, don't just face suffering and opposition and persecution with turmoil and trembling, but instead... With courage. And I think what we talked about last week with tenacious joy. This passage shows us how to deal with, think about, and embrace and face suffering and opposition with spiritual eyes. Eyes that see something that other people may not see. Eyes to see what we may not see at this point, but we need to see very clearly. Really, the root of the sermon title actually comes from the passage that Brandon read this morning, James chapter one, verses two and three, where it says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials, knowing the testing of your faith produces endurance. See, all week long, I was thinking about what does the Bible really teach? How do we do this? How do we embrace suffering in this way? Because it's not normal. Normal. Our flesh recoils at the thought of suffering. No one wants to suffer. And I think that in James chapter 1, when he says, count it all joy, I was thinking about that passage particularly because we said that Philippians is a book about joy. And now here we are talking about suffering, and we think those two can't go together. So I thought about how does the Bible teach us about how joy and suffering go together? So it drove me to James chapter 1. And he says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you face and encounter various trials. Count it is actually a, a fairly technical accounting term. It's a bookkeeping term. So how do we count suffering? How do we account for it as being something that is actually good rather than something that is totally fearful to be avoided at all cost? So let's consider that. The astounding, shocking, accounting principles and procedures of facing 
Christian suffering and opposition. Now, let me say this. I think that the kind of suffering that we're talking about here that Paul is addressing is persecution for the faith, but I'm not sure that it would preclude or exclude just general suffering in our lives that we would face as Christians, but I think it's a very particular kind of suffering here. It is what we would call persecution. So that's what we're going to do today is we're going to try to account for how we face suffering as Christians in a way that we don't shrink back and tremble in fear and run away, but instead face it with courage and joy. So here's what I would say to you. Number one, as I have contemplated this passage all week, the first thing that I see is that a right accounting of Christian suffering reckons with the riches of heaven. It reckons with the riches of our heavenly citizenship. Where did I get that? I get it from verse 27, and this would be very easy to overlook or miss in our English translations, but he says, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That word conduct, it actually has a root that is the same root as uh, politics. And so I was looking around at it, and it refers to your citizenship, your loyalty, what you are subject to. So conduct yourselves. Embrace the mentality that you are a citizen of heaven, not a citizen of this world. It's a matter of identity. Order your life. Live your life. Go about your daily business and all of the good and the bad and the ugly and even the suffering. Go about it with the mentality and the understanding that you are a citizen of heaven if you belong to Jesus Christ. Listen, he says, conduct yourself, be a citizen of something, of the kingdom of heaven. Where do I get the kingdom of heaven? Well, he says, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I think he's pointing to what is the great promise that we have when we come to Jesus by faith. I think the greatest promise is that we are forgiven of our sins, that death is not the final thing, that actually we come into the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We gain eternal life. That is an astounding promise of the gospel. And he says, live your life as a citizen of that one who has reckoned with the riches of heaven. And listen, when you're doing accounting, when you're doing accounting, you need to think about what is loss and what is ultimately gain. We're about ready to do our taxes. I hate that day. I hate that day because I'm always fearful of the bad news that could be coming at the end of that tax appointment. Are y'all with me? Y'all get your contribution statements. It'll help you. It'll help you when that day comes. I was thinking about, is this just some anomaly of the Apostle Paul, some kind of crazy way of thinking, or is this really something, is, is there more to this? Will I go to the words of Jesus? And what I would say is actually all through the New Testament, all the New Testament writers are doing this same kind of thing, but most of all, Jesus. And I thought about Jesus talking about suffering that would come for his followers and how to grapple with it. Why should we follow you, Jesus, if that is what awaits us? Well, there's something more that awaits. And Jesus said, blessed are you when men revile you, persecute you, and speak evil against you falsely for my sake. Oh, hold on just a second. Jesus would say what? I'm, I'm blessed, hashtag too blessed, 
If people are saying bad things about me, punching me, spitting at me, how do I feel blessed? How in any real way am I blessed when I'm being reviled, hated, cursed by people? Well, he says this at the end of that, for great is your reward in heaven. So in other words, you can endure these things because you know that on the other side of them, even if they kill you for my sake, what does he say? Great is your reward in heaven. So the accounting according to Jesus is, man, your reward in heaven is so astounding and big and, and glorious that anything that you face along the path getting there will seem as nothing. For great is your reward in heaven. When we become Christians, followers of Christ, there is something that happens, a profound transaction. We move from being citizens of this world and really viewing that all that we really have is this world. And so we need to get everything we can. We need to have every great experience and all of that. We move to become dead to the world in view of eternity. And instead we become citizens of heaven. And that's where our inheritance is. We're dead to the old dead to the ways of the world, and alive to Jesus Christ. Jesus told a parable about the kingdom of heaven in Matthew chapter 13. Actually, it's a succession of them, multiple things. Bam, bam, bam. Here's how you should think about the kingdom of heaven. And one of them is, Matthew 13, he says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure buried or hidden in a field. And there's this man that comes along and he finds that buried treasure in the field. But listen, he has no claim to that treasure because he doesn't own the field. And so this man sees that there is this buried treasure that is unbelievable. And he wants that. What does he do to gain it? It says he sells everything. And he goes and he buys the field. He buys the field that contains this amazing treasure. But listen, he sells everything to get it. And in essence, Jesus is teaching, I think, that when we come to see the kingdom of heaven as a treasure, it requires a cost of us. We have to be dead to everything else that we once thought was gain, that we once felt like was what it was all about. And now we see this rare and glorious treasure, but it costs us to come in to the kingdom of heaven. But anything that we lose is mere pocket change compared to the riches of what we have in heaven beyond this life. And we have to reckon with that. We have to think about that. We have to count the cost, but we have to consider the gain. You know, we see similar things like this actually being played out in our world today. If you watch the news very much, continually, we're seeing footage of what? Of, of people down in Mexico who leave everything. They leave their house. They leave families. Some of them bring family along. But they basically leave everything. Don't even come hardly with any clothes. And they come north to the border. Why? They're hoping to gain access to a different kingdom. They're hoping to become citizens of, residents of a better place. And they leave everything behind to do it. That seems foolish, unless you rightly 
account for what there is to gain in light of anything that you would lose. So a right accounting of Christian suffering must reckon with the riches of our heavenly citizenship. The second thing about this astounding accounting is that a right accounting of suffering for Christ requires a wartime mindset, requires a wartime mindset. So Paul in the beginning of verse 28 talks about opposition that the Philippians are facing. In no way alarmed by your opponents. In no way frightened or spooked or carried away by the threats of your opponents. And I first think the first thing that we have to do is, is, is get a hold of this. Don't be surprised if you are a Christian that you face opposition. We've been told we will face it. Why will we face it? Because there is a war being waged. God has enemies. And when you join his army, you become the enemy of his enemies. Listen, nobody joins and signs up for the military when there's a war raging gets the uniform, goes to basic training, gets trained, gets shipped overseas, and all of a sudden is surprised that there's a battle and that someone wants to kill them. Nobody is surprised by that. When we come to Christ, we join God's army. I can't take credit for this idea of the wartime mindset. I think it was John Piper when I first read that. And I thought about how different that is than the mindset that we have in America about Christianity. But this is what we're called into. We have opponents. We will face opposition as Christians. We need to be aware that God has enemies that have declared war on him. And listen, God is not rolling over and playing dead. He's doing something about it. He is fighting back. And he has a plan of redemption that he's working out through all of history. But listen, you have opposition, so don't be surprised about that. And then he says, don't be fearful. Don't be carried away. Don't be frightened. And I've been grappling with this for a couple of weeks, and I don't think that what it's saying is, you know, you should never, if you're a faithful, courageous Christian, you will never have a twinge of fear or dismay. I don't think it's that. It's not saying that you're going to embrace suffering as a great thing necessarily. There's going to be an inner turmoil, I believe. But here is what he says. Don't become terrorized. Don't become controlled by your fear. Face your fear with faith. The word here for frightened or alarmed, actually in ancient literature, was often used of a runaway horse. A horse that has become frightened or spooked and loses its mind. And guess what happens if you're riding that horse? <laughs> it's, a, it's a terrible thing. To be on that horse. And he said, in the same way, when you are threatened, insulted, persecuted, when you have the forces of darkness coming at you to intimidate you and shut you down, what, you what we must not do is become like a runaway horse and absolutely go berserk. Fear is such a powerful thing that it can cause us to lose our bearings and do and say things that we would never say when we're in our right minds. And so he says, do, do not be terrorized. Do not let fear get the best of you when you face these trials. Instead, 
face them with a thoughtful, informed, spirit-empowered grace that comes from God. That's what we're called to. There's a surviving letter from uh, the first century A.D. that came from a man named Clement I of Rome. Clement I was one of the uh, first generation of church leaders after the apostles, so he's a post-apostolic leader of the church. This letter was written about A.D. 90. And it actually, in that letter, Clement describes the life, the ministry, and the death of the apostle Paul. Here is a quote from that letter. Talking about Paul, it says, After he had been seven times in bonds, had been driven into exile, had been stoned, had, been, uh, had preached in the east and preached in the west, he won the noble renown, which was the reward of his faith. He departed from the world and went unto the holy place, having been found a notable pattern of patient endurance. So Clement I, he knows that Paul ultimately, he tells us, he was ultimately killed for his faith. He suffered all sorts of things that we can read about in the New Testament. And then ultimately, he went to his reward, that great reward in heaven. And he gave a pattern of patient, and I would add courageous, endurance for the cause of Christ. Clement I wrote those words. This same man, Clement I, some call him Pope Clement I, followed that pattern. Church history tells us that under the reign of the Emperor Trajan, Clement I was arrested because of his faith. He was banished to a penal colony along the Black Sea. And there he faithfully witnessed to Christ. And because of that, the leader of the prison camp took Clement I and tied an anchor around his neck and had him thrown into the Black Sea. But Clement I saw something. He saw a pattern. He saw patient, courageous endurance for the faith. You see, that kind of Courage, I think, is, as they say, it's mostly caught rather than taught. He saw it in the life of the Apostle Paul. If you turn over to Philippians chapter 4, verse 3, there's not very many people actually named in this letter. But you're going to notice the name in Philippians 4, 3, Clement. Clement listed as one of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Many people believe that the Clement of Philippians 4 is the one that observed Paul go to his death and then in turn also suffered a similar fate. These men, following in the teaching and training of Jesus, understood that to follow Christ is to be a soldier in a deadly battle. And I think that we need to understand that as Christians. So a right accounting of suffering requires a wartime mindset. Third thing from verses 28 and 9, a right accounting of Christian suffering 
recognizes at least some of God's purposes in suffering. So it's helpful if we as Christians say, what does the Bible teach us about why this happens? Why does God allow suffering? And I don't, let me say this, I don't think we will ever know everything. Some things only are hidden things that belong to God. Why this one and not that one? Peter grappled with that same question. Jesus, what about this guy? I don't want to face this. If that guy doesn't have to face this, that same Peter, when he was walking with Jesus, and Jesus said, you know, I'm going to be rejected by the elders and the scribes, and I'm going to be killed. What does Peter say? He recoils against this idea of Jesus suffering, probably mainly because he doesn't want to suffer too. But he says, no, not so, Lord. I will never let that happen to you. And what is Jesus' response to Peter? Get thee behind me. Satan. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of man. You're talking and walking in the flesh, Peter. There are purposes in suffering. And again, I don't think we can know them all, but I think this passage actually grapples and shows us some of them. You look at verse 29, and here's one of the first principles that we need to get a hold of. I mentioned it last week, but let's hear it again. That God grants suffering for Christ's sake. Verse 29 says, it has been granted to you to suffer for Christ's sake. That word granted, that's another interesting word. Charizomai, it is a, actually a gift of grace that God is giving you. What is that gift? It's suffering for Christ's sake. Doesn't seem like the much of a gift. But it is a gift. You have not just been given the gift of faith to believe in Jesus. You've not just been given eternal life, but you've been given the path to walk with Jesus, the same path that he walked. You've been given that. You, in your day, in your particular way, and I and mine have been given a duty as a soldier. We've been given a post to fill, to suffer for Christ's sake, to suffer on behalf of Christ, to be his witness in this world. And we have to understand following Jesus means following him not just immediately to the celestial city, but in the hills and valleys of the shadow of death. It's been given to us, granted to us to suffer for Christ's sake. Hey, listen, sometimes we look at people suffering and, and our immediate response or when we're suffering is to say, well, somehow they've, they've gotten outside the will of God. Because we can't hardly fathom that there is suffering in the plan of God. But this says it has been granted to you to suffer for Christ's sake. In other words, when we are suffering, we have not somehow fallen into some uh, 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 forsaken corner where God never sweeps. He knows exactly where we are and he has purposes in it. We are well within the providence of God when we suffer for Christ's sake. Mm. So, it's been granted to us to suffer for Christ's sake. For our union with Christ, there is purpose in it. Back to verse 28. We are given some particular purposes here, and I'll be honest with you, I'm, I'm still a little bit struggling with how to understand these fully. If you look back at verse 28, 
when he says, don't be alarmed in any way by your opponents, he gives the purpose. Here's what he says. This, this opposition and suffering and persecution and intimidation, he said, this is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you. And this too is from God. So when we suffer for Christ's sake, when Paul faced imprisonment because of his faith and preaching of the gospel faithfully, God was doing something in that. He was holding Paul up as a sign. He's wanting to show the world something about Jesus and about all of the, what God is doing in this salvation. He says it's actually a sign of their destruction. I wonder who it's a sign to. Is it a sign for me to see? Is it a sign for the church? Is it a sign to all of God's enemies? Who's it a sign for? Well, I'm not exactly sure. But when we are attacked by anti-God people, people who hate Jesus, one of the things that becomes evident is not their strength and their power and their ferocity. One of the things we should see is actually they're on their way to destruction. And I think it helps us maybe to do something that Jesus told us to do, which is pray for our enemies and those who persecute us. When we realize that they are on a dark path headed clearly for destruction. But it's also, it's also a reminder that we are being saved. What are we being saved from? I tell you, when, when we see senseless and brutal acts of violence against anybody, but especially to people like Paul who just went around doing good and preaching about salvation. And you see people attacking Christians. You realize, my goodness, this is indeed a world full of darkness and brokenness that we need to be rescued from. So we see a little more about the seriousness of salvation and about the damnable Position of those who are shaking their fist in the face of God. So persecution reminds us about God's enemies and about our salvation being rescued from this sinful and evil world. Church history also records the martyrdom, martyrdom of a man named Polycarp who was the bishop of Smyrna in around 150 A.D. At that time, persecution, you know, persecution throughout church history it seems to come up in waves. Basically, though, from the time of Jesus up till around the 300s, it was pretty much, in the Roman Empire, it was pretty much the rule of the day. But it would flare up and it would die down, flare up and die down, the killing and the martyrdom and the suffering of Christians for Christ's sake. But it had flared up again in the days of Polycarp, and it was happening and, and raging there in Smyrna. And so he went out to a rural area outside of Smyrna and held up in a farmhouse where he took up as his prayer post. And so he was a bishop, an overseer, a pastor. And so they were looking to quash the uh, Christian movement. And they went out and they found this house where Polycarp was holed up. And his captors came in. And he was in an upstairs room praying. And he came down. And... Uh, he reacted quite differently than even his captors 
thought that he might. He said, actually, the first thing he did was he ordered some of the folks at the house to make food for those soldiers who had come in to feed his persecutors. And as he fed them, he asked for one thing. He said, would you give me one more hour to pray? And I thought about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, maybe thinking about needing to be strengthened, maybe praying that this cup would pass. But nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. But Polycarp was granted one more hour to pray before his arrest. Ultimately, the soldiers arrested him, let him out on a donkey, brought him in for trial. And they offered him leniency. They said, we will forego your punishment if you'll do one thing, proclaim that Caesar is Lord. Not that Caesar is king, but Caesar is Lord. You must renounce the name of Jesus. You must revile Christ and proclaim that Caesar is Lord. Listen, you know, most of us think here's what we do. We just do that, right? As if that means anything. And we'd hold it back. Because we'd be thinking about all that would be lost if we were to die today. And all I have to say is three little words, Caesar is Lord, and I'll be let free. That was his choice before Polycarp. But he said, they said, if you do not renounce the name of Jesus, you will die today. So Polycarp insisted. Here's what he said. Eighty and six years I have served him, and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king and savior? Not the answer they wanted to hear. Some more threats came, and they continually tried to intimidate Polycarp. You know, if you can get the preacher, if you can get the hero of all these Christian people to renounce, man, there's intimidation factor in that. They tried that same thing with Jesus and the apostles. People try it still. I was at a conference, Bible conference this uh, Friday night, and they were talking about, because listen, all of this suffering seems like a, a long, long ago tale in a place far, far away. But at this conference, this man was talking about <coughs> suffering in India. He had just come back recently from a, a mission trip in India. And he said, you know, there's just various degrees of anti-Christian persecution going on. He said, one degree. In one place, I think it was Mumbai, but I can't remember, he said, you go into the marketplace and if you're known to be a Christian, you get a different price than everyone else in the marketplace. By the way, it's not the blue light special. You don't get the reduced price. You are gouged. Inflation hits you more than others. But he said, in other places in India, When a Christian loses a loved one and they bury them, it's not uncommon to wake up the next day and persecutors have buried, uh, dug up your loved one and put them on your porch. And all kinds of nasty and wicked and evil things perpetrated against Christians. Intimidation is powerful. So they tried to stop the movement by intimidating Polycarp and he would not renounce. And listen to what he said just before he died. Polycarp and this is recorded by a witness, said this, the fire that you threaten me with cannot, going on, cannot go on burning for very long. After a while, it goes out. But what you are unaware of 
are the flames of future judgment and everlasting torment which are in store for the ungodly. And the eyewitnesses who wrote down his words in these events said that the whole time this was Polycarp's demeanor. He was overflowing with courage and joy and his whole countenance was beaming with grace. Can you imagine this man, 86 years old, who would not renounce the name of Jesus and gave this clear testimony that the fires that you threaten me with, they will be snuffed out very soon. But if you do not repent, you will face the fires of eternal judgment. And he didn't say it with malice or fear, but with overflowing joy and courage and grace. The last thing that I want you to see in this passage as we close is that a right accounting of Christian suffering requires personal readiness. A personal readiness. Look at verse 30 as Paul writes from a prison cell to the church at Philippi who's being threatened. He says, you are experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. If you back up a verse or two, for to you it has been granted to suffer for Christ's sake. I think that it's very possible that we would say, yeah, man, that Apostle Paul, he really suffered. Man, that Polycarp, guys like that, Clement, those people over in India, man, that is awful when they suffer. But somehow we disconnect ourselves from that story. But listen, if you are a Christian, a follower of Christ, you have a target on your back from the evil one. And God knows it's going on and he's doing something in and amidst the suffering. But we cannot exempt ourselves from the story. Don't think, and I cannot think, that I will somehow be exempted from opposition and intimidation and fearful tactics because of Christ's sake. Here's a simple way of saying that. Hey, folks, you need to be ready. You need to be ready. I was reading a really interesting psychological study. Here's what they said about some people who routinely went to board meetings where they had lunch. They said if they ask a group of people about their meal preference and some things for a board meeting that was a week or two away, and they were given the option after the meeting of either having chocolate for dessert or fruit, they said almost without fail, the vast majority would always pick the fruit. But when asked about what they wanted for dessert at the meeting that day, they all chose the chocolate. And there's this bias, there's this thing that happens in our mind that somehow thinks that we're going to be in a week or two or a day or two or a year or two someone vastly different than we are today. But that's often not true. Now, people do change. How do they change? They grow in their knowledge and discernment and experience. And I think that what we need to grapple with is, hey, listen, we need to evaluate ourselves. Am I the kind of person today who is ready to suffer for Christ's sake?
And I think the vast majority of us would say, mm, no, not so much. We need to become and allow God to shape us and hone us and change our appetites and our tastes to become the kind of person who is ready to suffer for Christ's sake. It doesn't happen without change and a different way of thinking. I'll tell you, the, the, the best, near as I can tell, the best way to change your taste from a desire for chocolate to fruit, it's usually medically induced. It is that all of a sudden we become aware of the dangers of a constant diet of chocolate. And we become aware of the benefits of fruit. So I'm not trying to scare anybody. But I'm just trying to say, I think the Bible wants us to be ready. And then it helps us to get ready. Because for to us, it has been granted. There will be a day when in your particular way and time and moment, and at the post at which you stand, you will be assaulted if you are openly a Christian. It will happen. And it will look different for you than it would for me. But we need to become the kind of person who is ready to stand in that evil day because Jesus and Paul and all of the New Testament writers and the saints throughout the ages and even, listen, our Christian brothers and sisters in places not so far away today are witnessing to the fact that Christians suffer for the sake of Christ. So readiness is required. Now listen, how do we get ready? Well, Philippians chapter 2, the next leg of our journey in this wonderful book of joy is going to call us and teach us into and about what kind of mental shifts and practical things that need to change in our lives to become the kind of people who are able to stand when we are assaulted and bombarded by the evil one. Philippians chapter 2. And I want you to get ready. I want you to get ready. I want you to be, I want us all to be together a people who are preparing and allowing the Lord to prepare us. Should that day come when to us it will be granted that we should suffer for Christ's sake. Would you bow with me today? Number one, the invitation for you today is first and foremost, what kingdom are you a citizen of? Are you a citizen of the heavenly kingdom? Have you come to Christ and gotten your eternity nailed down as a matter of faith and a matter of fact? Have you trusted Christ as your Savior? Do that today. If he's beckoning you and calling you like he did the Apostle Paul on the Damascus Road, showing him that he was not living a righteous life, quite the opposite. He was kicking against and rebelling against the work that God is doing to save people. And he radically changed Paul. And he'll radically change you as he gives you the eyes to see. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Turn from your way. Accept Christ. Become a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. 
Number two, if you are a citizen of the kingdom, then you are a soldier of the kingdom. We need to be ready to face the clear and stark teaching of the Bible that it will cost the things of this world as we are on the journey and one day we'll arrive to heaven and we will gain an inheritance and a glory that is above and beyond anything we could even ask or think or even comprehend. Do your accounting today. Remember what's truly valuable. Remember what things are simply passing away and fading away. Would you commit to the Lord a brand new way? Would you commit to the Lord your heart, your priorities, your values, your bank account, your freedoms? Would you commit those to Him? Ask Him to totally revolutionize and radical, radically change your priorities in such a way that you look like Jesus, that your life is aligned to the way of Jesus. Simply put, commit yourself to him again today. All that you have, all that you are, for the greatest purpose in all of history is to bear witness to the glory of Jesus and the amazing grace and salvation that we have in him. Lord, today I pray that you would do a crazy, flipping us upside down kind of work in our hearts and minds in the days to come as we submit ourselves fully to your purposes. God, we recognize that this idea of embracing suffering isn't normal, looks weird in the eyes of the world and it even goes against our fleshly desires but God would you give us the faith and the grace to walk in these things open the eyes of our hearts that we would see more clearly as we continue to study this book of joy Help us to count it all joy when we lose things that the world says are ultimate. But we know that we've gained an eternity. Help us to see clearly and to know and to lean on and to be calmed by Jesus' words that our reward is great with him in heaven. Lord, we cling to that today. To the fulfillment of of your promise by your faithfulness. Help us to walk in these things. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Listen, folks, thank you for your kind attention. If you are a studious sort, we are done with Philippians chapter 1, but don't leave it behind because the chapter breaks in the Bible, uh, they're man-made. Actually, Philippians 1 bleeds right over into the things we're going to look at in Philippians 2. So if you'd like to read ahead, 
But do it in light of the things that we've been talking about in these days.